Corinth was an ancient city. It was a prosperous city, both before and after the golden years of Athens in the fifth century BC. But following the death of Alexander the Great, Greek prominence slowly gave way to Roman superiority, and the Romans destroyed Corinth in 146 BC. They did what they typically did as Romans. They leveled it, and they took all the people that they felt like were worthy of taking back to Rome as slaves, and essentially, the city of Corinth lay bare for a hundred years after it was first destroyed. Then in 44 BC, Corinth was refounded under Julius Caesar as a Roman colony. Now, Caesar didn't do just this just out of benevolence. He did it for two primary reasons. First, Corinth occupied a strategic location for commerce. And since money makes the world go round, the reestablishment of Corinth was inevitable. But second, as the city of Rome became overpopulated, they needed places that they could send people who had become Roman citizens to ease the overcrowding. Corinth was a perfect fit. The historian Strabo recorded that most of the people who initially repopulated Corinth were freedmen whose status was just that above that of a slave. Living in Corinth, though, provided these freedmen with an incredible opportunity to make some money, which is exactly what many of them did. Economic prosperity came to the new Corinth almost immediately. And since the opportunity to prosper economically was there and it was a strong attraction, Corinth began to attract people from all over the Mediterranean region, both from the east and the west. The primary people group in Corinth was Roman. And being a Roman colony, they did bring them with them Roman law, Roman culture, and Roman religion. But in spite of that, Corinth remained a very Greek city in many ways, with a strong Greek influence in the areas of religion, philosophy, and the arts. So there was much overlap there between the Roman culture and the Greek culture. And then add to the mixed immigrants from Egypt and Asia, and a fair number of Jews. And we find that Corinth was a very cosmopolitan place at the time Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians. The resulting culture was marked by a strong bent toward the supremacy of philosophy. It also had significant disparity between the rich and the poor, and it was marked by immorality. Not surprisingly, these issues were at work against the young church in Corinth. It was not an easy place to found a church, nor to minister. While Corinth was never Athens when it came to being a center of learning, they did have a prevailing culture of intellectualism, or might I say intellectual elitism. Now, the reason I give you some of this background is so you'll know why Paul wrote this letter and some of the overlay, because we finished the letter today. Second, even though there was a great deal of money that was made in Corinth, not everyone was blessed financially. There appears to be a developing gap between those who were blessed from a socioeconomic standpoint and those who were not. But we should keep in mind that even the poor in Corinth were much better off than the middle classes in other parts of the world. Does that sound slightly familiar to you? Well, if it doesn't, you haven't traveled very much because the poor in the United States, believe me, the poor in the United States are what are designated as poor here 
are much better off economically than the middle classes of many, if not most nations around the world. So it's the same kind of thing that was going on in Corinth. Now as to this issue, the third issue, as to the issue of Corinthian immorality, Corinth did have a reputation for immorality that went back several hundred years before the foundation of the Corinthian church. In fact, the reputation of Corinth was so bad before its refounding, I'm talking about before Caesar refounded it, that the name Corinth became a synonym for fornication. Corinthianazo meant to act like a Corinthian or to commit fornication. Cult prostitutes were a common fixture in ancient Corinth. But even in the new Corinth, even in the Corinth that was founded by Caesar, the reputation for immorality was still strong. Some say the Corinthian immorality has been a bit overplayed. Maybe it has. Donald Guthrie in his classic New Testament introduction says that immorality in Corinth was probably no worse than immorality in any port city of the ancient world. The argument being that whenever you bring together money and women and men who had been at sea for long periods of time, bad behavior is going to happen. But to say that is something like saying Hitler was no worse than Stalin. You're not really saying very much when you say that. That's no compliment to Hitler. Both were evil. And even if the immorality problem in the new Corinth wasn't as bad as it was in the old Corinth, it was still worse than other places that Paul ministered to. It was just like any port city of the ancient world. But it was an issue in Corinth, more so than it seems to be an issue in some of the other places like Philippi, for example, that Paul ministered to. It was a significant problem in the church, and we've seen that as we've gone through the study of 1 Corinthians. In the first 15 chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul addressed 11 concerns of the church that had come to his attention. Ten of the 11 were behavioral. Only one was overtly theological, the one we've been studying recently with respect to the resurrection. Throughout our study of this letter, we've been stressing that believers have a responsibility to model Christ to the culture and not allow the culture to become their model for living in worship. The Corinthian believers had a lot to learn, and that learning should have led to love which is the application of all that we know theologically. In that sense, a case could be made that when we studied chapter 13, it was the central chapter in all of the letter, the love chapter. But I want you to see it's not a chapter that's given in isolation. Paul's making that application to all of the problems that they had had, not just the problems with spiritual gifts. All the problems could be solved in Corinth if they would properly love one another. Only after coming to the point where they knew truth and then practiced the truth in love could they really be said to be living an effective Christian life. And isn't that what we want? Don't we want to be an effective Christian, one who truly glorifies God with our lives? Of course we do. Hence the title of the series that we gave quite some time ago, Learn, Love, Live. They first had to learn, and then as a, as a result of that learning, they needed to love and then once they really began to love, then they would really live. You know, some, so many people are taking up oxygen every day on this planet, and they're not really living. There are a lot of people that get to the end of their life, and on their deathbed, they sadly realize that they never really lived. 
or that they breathe, their heartbeat, but they never really lived. And what I mean by that, as a Christian, to have really lived is to have glorified God, to glorify God with one's life, to make a difference in this world. But it's not necessarily a difference that everybody's going to be able to see. In fact, most of the differences that we make on this planet are things that only God knows about. Now, we're tempted to tell people. I'd be tempted to tell you that I just preached a little sermon yesterday morning on the idea of love and sacrifice. And when I was coming back from the prayer breakfast, I saw a guy, this, this poor fellow in his truck, and he couldn't push the truck out of the way. So I got out of the truck and I helped him push it up there. But then I think I would have just blown the fact that I helped him do it because I want everybody to know that I practiced love yesterday. <laughs> God knows what you do in secret. He knows what you do that nobody else knows. He knows about the phone call that you made to that person that was hurting or the card that you wrote. You don't have to put it in the church bulletin. You don't have to have somebody pat you on the back for, for that. God knows the difference that you made in your kids' lives and your grandkids' lives and the sacrifice that you made for them and the sacrifice that you've made for other human beings along the line, many of which you've, you've forgotten yourself. God knows about all those. That's what I mean about really living. You don't have to be famous to have really lived. In fact, many famous people are more infamous than they are famous, if you get right down to it. In many ways they are. And then they flame out in such a way that we wonder whatever happened to them. I'm talking about really living. And if we want to really live, we need to learn God's Word, and we need to apply it in love all the time, whether anybody sees us or not. It needs to happen regularly. Then we can say we've lived an effective life, a meaningful life here on this earth. As we come to Paul's final thoughts in chapter 16, we're reminded that even though there are universal truths which are applicable for all times, for all Christians, this letter was written to a specific people in a specific context. Paul's going to make some concluding remarks that we'll consider today that some of them may be considered housekeeping items for Paul. We're not going to spend a lot of time on the housekeeping items, but there is much to be gleaned from this chapter, and we'll spend some time on those things that are more universal in their truth. Here, Paul's going to give instructions in this chapter on the collection of an offering that was to be taken up for those who were poor. He'll mention his own travel plans, and then he's going to give some instructions with respect to Timothy and Apollos. Then in the concluding verses... He reminds us of the central application of the letter that I just mentioned, love. The application of applications. Without it, there is no positive Christian experience. Without it, there's no spiritual growth. Read along with me, if you will, in the first nine verses of chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send with them letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I shall stay with you, or even spend the winter, that you may send me on my way whenever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me. There are many adversaries. When he's finished chapter 15, he has essentially finished the, the thrust of his argument. 
And now he's saying some goodbyes to them. But even in some of the goodbyes, we have some information that we should glean from this chapter. Just as the Christian should be organized with respect to his or her giving, the church should be organized with respect to the collection of the offering. Paul's going to delve into the subject of Christian stewardship much more in 2 Corinthians. So we'll wait to cover that idea in any depth there. But I do think that he gives us a hint of what he's going to say later in this one little phrase in verse 2, as he may prosper. We're to give as we may prosper. There's a principle of giving that we should keep in the forefront of our minds. And that is that everything that we have belongs to God. Everything that we have comes from God. We are simply stewards of God's resources. Now think about that for a moment. Because until you accept the truth of those statements, you'll never have the right attitude in Christian giving. Until you recognize that everything comes from Him, everything belongs to Him. And that we're stewards of God's resources, of His resources, not ours. It doesn't belong to us. Until we get that, we're always going to have a problem with giving. It all belongs to Him. And in an organized way, long before the plate is passed, each believer should prayerfully consider what will be given back to God and what will be kept for his own use. Having said that, you need to keep in mind, there's nothing wrong with keeping some for your own use. God gave it to you so you could do that. But there's everything wrong with the mindset that this is mine. I earned it. You can say that in two, with two different emphases. I earned it or I earned it. Either one is wrong. Who gave you the job? Who gave you the health to do that job, the intellectual ability to do that job, the physical energy to do that job? Let me tell you how you can tell. As soon as it's taken away from you, who are you praying to to get the energy back so that you can do your job? As soon as you're injured, who are you praying to? You realize you can't do that job unless God had graced you in the first place. As soon as you lose the job, there are layoffs, maybe fair, unfair, I, I don't know. But then who are you praying to to get another job? And he gives it to you. Don't forget who gave you the job in the first place that allowed you to earn the money that you think is yours. It's not. There's everything wrong with that mindset, my friends. Everything wrong with the mindset, this is mine, I earned it. And there's everything wrong with feeling anything but joy in giving back to God what he has first given to us. In the next letter, Paul's going to say, God loves a joyful giver. And a joyful giver recognizes that it all belongs to him. So we don't have to get involved in, in numbers or in twisting people's arms. I, I, think, I find that that's an abomination. Giving is between an individual believer and God. It really has nothing to do with me. Now I can let certain needs be known from time to time. But your Christian giving has everything to do with your relationship with God. And I think it's terrible when Christian churches or when Christian organizations put pressure on people to give that which they don't really want to give. Because this is the bad part. Don't miss this. If you're given something with a bad attitude and you really don't want to give it, you may as well have kept it. Because it doesn't do you any spiritual good at all. 
Because God loves a cheerful giver. That goes for here too. Don't let anybody twist your arm to give. If God leads you to do it, then you do it. If he doesn't lead you to do it, then don't do it. But don't give with a bad attitude. That's not the way it works. It's like buying your wife flowers for Valentine's just because you think you got to do it. And you grumble all the way to the store and you grumble all the way back. If she ever found out about that, you think she's going to appreciate the flowers? I don't think so. I wouldn't if the shoe was on the other foot. I wouldn't appreciate it at all. The attitude's what's, what's counting in the gift. So we learn that from these first few verses, that there should be an organized way that we, that we look at our own personal finances. There should be an organized way that the church look at, looks at how that, that is taken up. Now, we happen to do it with an offering plate. Some churches do it with a box in the back. It, it, there's not one that's more spiritual than the other. We just found that this is the most efficient way. But it needs to be organized, and it needs to be as the believer has been prospered. Skipping down to verse 10 for a moment. Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he's doing the Lord's work, as I am also. Let no one therefore despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and he was, it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. According to chapter 4, verse 17, and I know it's been a while since we covered that chapter, Paul had already or was about to send Timothy to Corinth, as he writes this letter, to minister to the church there. Evidently, and, and I know I, my personal view is that sometimes pastors and theologians read a little too much into some of these things to make, make more of a point than really should be there about Timothy. You know, timid Timothy, you've heard that before. Apparently, all, all we can say is that apparently Timothy's personality wasn't as strong as Paul's personality. And I think we can say pretty much for sure it wasn't as strong as Titus's personality. It seemed like when Paul needed the dirty work done, he didn't sing, send Timothy, he sent Titus to do the dirty work, what I would call the heavy lifting. But Timothy apparently was more easily shaken than the Apostle Paul was. That doesn't mean he was a bad person. doesn't mean he was necessarily a weakling or a an immature person in any way. It just meant that was his personality. There's dozens and dozens of different personality types in this room here today. But the reality was, Paul was concerned that these people in Corinth, who had done their best to chew him up and spit him out, would really do even more to Timothy. And he's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Because he's going to come and visit him again. He's actually already hinted that. And he's letting them know, listen, I'm sending this guy to you, and he's doing the Lord's work. And you know what that tells me? That tells me that it really doesn't matter what your personality is. Because ministry is full of people with all different kind of personalities. There is no one pastoral personality. There's no one missionary personality. There's no one Sunday school teacher personality. There may be a nursery worker personality. I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> but no, God has gifted people in, uniquely with all different kind of personalities. And Paul's just saying, listen, you remember, he's doing God's work. When he comes to minister to you, 
He's doing God's work. And that's something that you should keep in mind, regardless of his own individual personality. Whether he has a powerful voice and he's very eloquent, or whether he's soft-spoken. It doesn't matter. Just so long as he's speaking the Word of God. And that's what Paul is saying here. With respect to Apollos, it almost seems like Apollos is getting a, a short stick here. Because it seems as though Apollos doesn't want to come to Corinth. We really know very little about his reluctance to come to Corinth with Timothy. In fact, we don't know if, if Apollos ever made it back to Corinth. We know that he was there because remember in the first chapter they were arguing over who had baptized him. You know, I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Peter. I was baptized by Apollos. So we know that he was there, but we don't know if he made it back ever. And in my view, it's not useful to fill in the blanks with speculation. So now we're going to move to a summary of the applicational principle of not only this letter, but a case could be made that this is the applicational principle for all of the New Testament, and actually all of the Bible. And that's in verses 13 and 14. But be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. The Corinthians face danger from outside of the local church. And unfortunately, they face danger from inside of the local church, from within the local church. In fact, most of the trouble that local churches face comes from within, not from without. Sad, but that's the truth. Those who wittingly or unwittingly do things to hurt the unity of the local church and the effectiveness of the local church will be disciplined by God Himself. We have studied that over the course of our study of this first letter to the Corinthians. Paul will write later in his life, toward the end of his life, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will judge him in accordance with his deeds. I wouldn't want to be Alexander the coppersmith that did everything that he could to put roadblocks in the way of the Apostle Paul's ministry. This disunity thing in Corinth was a big problem. That's why Paul started with it. And so Paul's saying, don't do it. Now there's times when, people, when churches have legitimate disagreements. We're not talking about that. But people who make it their life's work to destroy the ministry of someone else need to be careful. To be called an Alexander the coppersmith is not a compliment. And so Paul is telling them here, be on the alert. They were to stand firm in the faith. Here, the faith was referring to revealed truth. They were to act like men. But since this is written to men and women, one has to go back and look and see exactly what's going on with that particular word. The word can be translated to act like men, but some of your Bibles probably translate it to be courageous. And that probably is a better translation for our day and time to, to communicate to this audience, to be courageous. They were to be strong in light of what was happening, not just from without, the culture that was seeping in through the cracks in the doors, which was bad enough. They needed to be strong in the face of problems that were occurring inside the church. You recall those, right? They had problems with immorality that they weren't able to deal with. They had problems with one believer suing another inside the church. They were arguing inside the church about the spiritual gifts. Those things didn't come from without. Those were issues that were happening inside that local church. 
And so Paul, Paul may be directing this toward the leadership of the church, but it's written to all of them, that they're to be on the alert. They're to watch for things like that. They're not to let their guard down. They're to stand firm in the truth, if I may translate it that way. They're to stand firm in what they've been taught that was true from the Word of God. And when it says to act like men, to be strong, they're to be courageous. I know very few people who actually enjoy confrontation. I know a few. They'll walk around the block to get in a confrontation with somebody. Most of the people that I know, though, I think it's more the human condition that we want to avoid confrontation if we possibly can. We want peace, right? As we grow older, that's one of the main virtues that we seek is just peace. We don't want to confront, but Paul's saying there's going to come times when a confrontation may have to take place. If there are people trying to destroy the church at Corinth from within, then the confrontation must take place. But just so we don't leave it there, and I'm so glad he didn't stop it with the confrontation, acting like men or be courageous, be strong. I'm so glad he gave us verse 14. Because in the same way that Paul preaches truth everywhere he goes, and he preaches it dogmatically, it's to the point, there's no equivocation with Paul, but you remember how he said this, that the truth should be spoken? In love, right? In love. Well, how are they to be on the alert, to stand firm in this faith, to be courageous and to be strong? It's got to be done with love. Because, see, the human tendency is for people who don't like confrontation to have to bow up their neck when the confrontation comes, put their shoulder into the wind, and almost act outside of their own personality type. And that's why so many people, when they get in confrontation that are not used to being in confrontation, go way too far with their reaction in the confrontation. Because they don't want to be in that confrontation in the first place. They're a little angry. Somebody even put them in that position that they had to confront. And what Paul's saying is, just remember, part of standing firm in the faith, part of being strong, part of being courageous, part of being on the alert, is doing it in love. Just like we're supposed to speak the truth in love, we're supposed to be strong in love, be on the alert in love, to stand firm in the truth in love. Verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. This was the message of chapter 13. In my view, this is the message of the entirety of the epistle and maybe even the entirety of the New Testament. They were to will the highest and the best for others, even when they were standing firm in the faith, especially when they're standing firm in the faith. William Dembski wrote that suffering is the currency of love. I like that very much. But with fear and trembling, I would amend it ever so slightly and say that sacrifice is the currency of love. Without sacrifice, there is no love. You know what a mother does for her young child when that child is helpless? That young mother may get no sleep at all at night, but that baby cries out, and that young mother is up to change that diaper or to nurse that baby or to give that baby whatever that baby needs, fathers too. You see, that's a sacrifice. Because young mothers need sleep too. Young fathers need sleep too. Taking that family analogy just a little bit further, as families grow, oftentimes parents will set aside things that they would really like to do. They may have had a trip planned for years and years. That trip may not get to happen because someone had some medical bills or someone needed some new clothes or maybe books for school are more expensive than, than, than they were thought to be. So 
one family may set aside some of the things that the parents wanted to do for the greater good of the children. Not grumbling about it, because I've got to tell you, it's just like giving. If we grumble about it while we're doing it, it's not love. It's not love. It may be something, but it's not true sacrifice. Sacrifice is the currency of love. Oftentimes, whether it's a mother or father in a family situation or a friend, or somebody you don't even know, Willing the highest and the best for someone else requires that we give up something. Now, are you okay with that? Are we still so childlike in our spiritual lives that we say, no, I'm not okay with that. I'll help them as long as it doesn't bother me at all. As long as it doesn't inconvenience me in the least, then I'm going to help them. Well, if that's the attitude that you, that you find yourself with this morning, please don't tell me about it. <laughs> you don't have to shake your head yes that that's my attitude. <laughs> Don't do that. But if that's the attitude that you find yourself in, I want you to go back and reread 1 Corinthians every day for the next month. Seriously, every day for the next month. I want you to let this message be absorbed in you because that was the attitude of the Corinthians. We got to purge that from our soul. One thing we don't think about sometimes is the sacrifice that's part of love could be either material or immaterial. Either material or immaterial. It could involve a, a financial sacrifice. That would be a material sacrifice. Or perhaps it could involve a sacrifice of time. That's an immaterial sacrifice, isn't it? Getting up with that baby in the middle of the night, that's a sacrifice of time. That's a sacrifice of comfort. You can't put a money value on that. It may be a sacrifice of emotion. We, have, we may have to sacrifice our own emotional status for someone else. And let me give you an example for that, of that. The scriptures tell us that we're to laugh with those who laugh, right? We should be joyous when somebody else is prosperous. We shouldn't look down upon them. We shouldn't be envious of them. We should be joyous when they're, when they're prosperous. But you know what it also tells us? That we should weep with those who weep. And I've got to tell you, it's a lot harder for most of us to do that. To give it up emotionally. To sacrifice emotionally for someone else. To come alongside and put your arm around them, and when they've just lost a child, or they've just lost a mother, or a father, or a husband, or a wife, and they're weeping for tears to run down your cheeks too, because you love them. You know why your tears run down your cheeks? Because you feel for them. And that's actually investing yourself in someone else. And that's, that's an emotional investment. That's an emotional sacrifice. It would be a, probably a whole lot easier for you not to invest in them emotionally at all. To put your arm around and say, listen, God works all things together out for good. See you next week at lunch. <laughs> if you're not still upset. If you've gotten over this by now. Because you're a Christian, right? No, that's not love. That's not You haven't sacrificed a thing by doing that. But to invest in someone emotionally. And it's not easy. I'm telling you. It's not easy pastorally. Because it happens all the time. It's not easy individually, but it does happen all the time individually too, doesn't it? But that's part of love. Sacrifice comes in many forms, but if one is to truly love and thus carry the mark of a committed disciple of Jesus Christ, love is not an option. Love is an essential. Love was the answer to all of the Corinthian problems, and it's the answer to all of our problems as well. Problems with church, problems with business, problems with marriages, problems with families. No matter what the issue, individual problems, the answer is love. As the letter ends, 
In verse 19, Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned. This is a couple with whom the Corinthians would have been very familiar. They lived in Corinth like Apollos. They were former residents of Corinth. They had lived there, and then when Paul came through, they left Corinth with Paul and set up residence in Ephesus. And we know that when they went to Ephesus, that they set up a house church in their home. And this tells me that there are times when God moves people from one location to another location or from one local church to another local church. And if that's God's will, that's by golly exactly what you ought to do. If that's God's will. Because God may have had you fulfill the function for which you were attending that particular church for a while, and he may want you somewhere else. And that's cool. It, you're, everybody belongs to God. They don't belong to any individual pastor, any individual church. And Priscilla and Aquila, while I'm sure they were prominent members of the church at Corinth, they were needed in Ephesus. And so at the time that Paul writes this, he, he lets the people know that Priscilla and Aquila are doing quite well, thank you. And he mentions that they should greet one another with a holy kiss. In that culture, the culture of ancient Greece slash Rome, because remember we started off today by saying it was a syncretistic culture between those two cultures. It was common for people when they greeted one another for men to kiss men, almost like with those air kisses that they do sometimes in, in other countries, and for women to kiss women. It wasn't customary for men to kiss women and vice versa. That wasn't the custom there. But that was the custom they had back then. It's similar to what you see all throughout Europe now. People do, I don't know if it's two kisses or three kisses. They never touch lips, but they kind of touch cheeks. It's like an air kiss. That was the culture then. It was a demonstration of love, hospitality. Now today, we may do it a little differently. I don't think that the, the command is itself to follow that particular cultural norm, but it's to follow the principle behind the norm. We may shake hands. We may give a hug. Some people don't like hugging. Some people prefer not to hug. And you can tell when that's the case. If they don't want to be hugged, don't hug them. All right? Some people love it. This is the only place they get a hug during the week. They love that. But the point is that we're to greet one another. And we're to be joyful when we do it. Because if we really love the people that we're greeting, it won't be hard. Shake their hand, ask them how they're doing, how their week went. It's just normal courtesy. So guess what? Normal courtesies do extend into the Christian life. And then in the final verses, verses 21 through 24, they read this way. This greeting is in my own hand. And then he signs it, Paul. It was customary for apostles like Paul, writers of the ancient world, to use people that were kind of like scribes, ancient administrative assistance in a way. And they would have written the letter down, but at the end of the letter, to authenticate the letter, what Paul's saying is, look, I'm signing this letter, this greeting, these last few verses, verses 21 through 24, apparently were written by Paul in his handwriting. So that's why he says, this greeting is in my own hand. Then he says in verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha. Now Maranatha means, oh, come Lord, or, or oh, Lord, come. Now that's pretty strong. And remember, he's saying this not so much to the pagans outside the church. He's saying this to people inside the church. So there's a pretty big line that Paul's drawing in the sand. And you're either on the right side of it or you're on the wrong side of it. Paul wants his readers to be on the right side of it. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you. 
In Christ Jesus, amen. When we think back to all the problems that this rowdy group had given the Apostle Paul, and then he signs this letter, my love be with you. And not just, my love be with those of you that didn't give me a hard time. You notice what he said? My love be with all of you. Every single one of them. Even the ones that were the rowdy bunch there in Corinth. Even the ones that had given them a great, greatly, very difficult time. Even the ones that were having the problem with the immorality. He loved them. Even the ones that were having the problem with suing one another. He loved them. Even the ones that were not behaving well during the communion service. He loved them. Even the ones that had a hierarchy of spiritual gifts and thought they were all that because they had the gift of tongues and somebody else didn't have that gift. He loved them. People don't really adhere much to truth that is preached by people who don't practice what they preach. Now, nobody practices what they preach perfectly. Those that know me best can attest to that, and that's the truth. But you try to practice what you preach consistently, if not perfectly. And that's what Paul did. He ends the letter with love. On July 25th, 1967, the Beatles released their song, All You Need Is Love, via satellite to an audience of 350 million people. I believe Kim Monroe was one of the people in that audience <laughs> that day. Not really. But 350 million other people were. All You Need Is Love. Remember that song? You can nod your head. That's okay. It's not a sin to remember that song. Frankly, I like the title. The rest of the lyrics are pretty lame. But they had it right in the title. Love was seriously lacking in the Corinthian church. That's what they needed, was love. Years ago, I asked Dwight Pentecost what he would teach first if he came into a new work, if he came into a new church setting, and he was the pastor of that church. What would you teach first, Dr. P., I asked him. And he said, without any hesitation at all, he said, I'd teach 1 Corinthians. I was a little taken back by that because I thought, sure, he would say John or Ephesians or Romans, the things that all of us in the Bible church typically preach first. But he said, no, 1 Corinthians. And after I probed him for a while as to why you would pick 1 Corinthians, he said, he responded, because almost every problem that a young church could face is introduced and dealt with in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, as well as the answer to all the problems that all Christians face everywhere. And that's love. Without love, there is no spiritual growth or positive Christian experience.